Amen. Well, again, welcome to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus Christ, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And a big part of how we do that is, is as we gather together, we sing songs to Jesus as our King. We take communion, remembering His sacrifice for us on the cross. We open up His Word in the Bible. I'm just going to walk right through um, uh, sections of Scripture. If you notice today when you came in that, like, whoa, um, you know, no projector. Now I'm like reading from a song sheet like it's, you know, 1957 or something. Um, like we did not just shift theological convictions to assuage technology. In fact, thank you for joining us online on our Facebook feed right now. We're glad you're here. Uh, and so we're pro-technology. Um, in fact, so pro-technology um, that uh, we've gotten apparently noticed in our community as a place where you can get technology late at night if you break into the building. Um, and so that is what's happened in the last week here, uh, which is, you know, a bit discouraging, but, you know, it's, it is just stuff like God uh, provides for us well, and, and we're excited uh, to uh, continue going on. But as we prepare for this service, I want you to know that, like, God's word always uh, is true. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. And you can, you can rest in and rely on the promises of God. What you cannot rest in and cannot rely on is the promises from Amazon that your projector will be here on Friday. Because here we are at Sunday. And now it says, oh, it might be there on Tuesday, maybe. So hopefully this is just for one week. Um, but if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we make it our habit just to walk right through sections of Scripture. Uh, and so we are in the book of 2 Corinthians a letter that Paul wrote to a church, a church that had a lot of issues, had a lot of challenges, had a lot of conflicts. And, and if you uh, are joining us for the first time today, um, you can grab one of our discipleship guides out in uh, the foyer. Uh, that is just to help you to follow along with what we going, have going on here. And today we're in chapter 7, verses 5 through 16. And so I'd love to say they're on the screen, but again, no projector. So you might have to like open up a Bible, um, and you can flip through it there, or you can pull it up on your phone. And as we turn there to 2 Corinthians 7, um, I want us to begin to ask ourselves um, how and why we change. And, and I hope you're starting from a place of, yeah, we, we need to change. We're, we're not yet perfect. Like, everybody should be able to raise their hands on not yet perfect. And if you want to argue otherwise, we can come at you real quick with pride, right? Because none of us are perfect. And as Christians, we recognize that part of how we see ourselves as not yet perfect is the fact that sin is real, that sin impacts our lives. Sin has an impact on our souls. Sin has an impact on our relationships. Sin has an impact on our relationship with the Lord, the creator of all things. And so he's called us to be holy, to be set apart. We talked about that a little bit last week. But we, we find that difficult because sin has impacted us in a variety of ways. And so maybe as, as we're getting into spring, or I should just call it second fall, did you guys like that week of summer? Right? It was like we had a week of summer. Now it's back to sweatshirts. I think pumpkin spice lattes are coming back out. Um, you know, that's just where we're at now. Um, no, but as the seasons change, we look back at the last year, and I think we kind of give ourselves a pass. Well, you know, I just 
was a little lazy during the season, or I, you know, I didn't read my Bible that much, like I didn't have much time, <laughs> gave it to yourself, right? You, you know, like, we just give ourselves a pass for the actions and attitudes of the last year because, oh my gosh, so much societal change, so much conflict, so much issues with politics, with culture, with whatever it was that, that, that man, it, the circumstances are really what drove me to just be a little angsty, to a little not love my neighbor anymore, a little just, you know, unkind. And if we're honest, I think we can recognize that, that before 2020, we might not have always been crushing at being perfect, at being loving, at being kind. And so um, even in the, the, the worst of times, which I know there's challenges now, but I would contend this is not the worst of, of times. Um, we can think that, oh, we'll just give ourselves a pass for our behaviors, for our actions, for our attitudes. And so... Um, this season feels like we're just kind of circling uh, an airport waiting to, to, to land um, to get back to you know, normal as this destination. Um, and, and yet the challenge is we can't just rely on our circumstances to be what, what changes us or shapes us or, or, or um, you know, helps us to live a flourishing life because even in the most perfect conditions, sin invades. And we see that right away in the narrative of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything good. He put Adam and Eve in a garden, in a place of perfection, in perfect communion with one another, in perfect communion with God. And in the most perfect of circumstances, sin, pride, rejection, rebellion of God's word, twisting of God's word, all separating from God, separating from each other, causing relational conflict and causing shame. And so if we're not going to just make it because of perfect circumstances. We need to have some idea of what does endurance look like individually and, and relationally because um, in, in life and in the Bible, afflictions come in many forms. And we'll see that here in, in 2 Corinthians 7 because we experience grief, pain, frustration, angst for a variety of different reasons. And, and I think often we look around at the actions of others and we're like, oh, I'm so frustrated with that person right now. And yet, it can often be our choices, our actions, our attitudes, which can ultimately cause us the greatest pain. And so when we get personally derailed by the impact of sin in our lives, the answer for that is repentance, to turn from sin, to following Jesus, and to go back to a path of endurance. And then when we're discouraged with life and, and, and afflictions, uh, where we find comfort and encouragement to not despair, needs to be found not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, not in others, but in Christ alone. And so... We cannot endure alone. We cannot endure in our own strength. And we see that in Christ, we've been made new. Like he's, we have a new identity in Christ, right? We, if you're a Christian, it means um, that you're no longer under condemnation, but you're under God's grace. And that means you are literally a, a new creation, but we're also called to pursue being new for the purposes of us experiencing joy and for the purposes of who God is to be glorified, lifted up, in our lives, yes, in our communities, in our world. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, because, ha, no screen, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start verses 5 through 7. 
Here's Paul writing to this church. He's talked about how in affliction they have overflowing joy. And he comes to verse 5 and he says to the church here, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, it's a new region, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. Verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he's comforted you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. All right, so let's, let's talk about this. Paul's on a journey. He's been going from town to town. He's been planting churches. He's been involved in ministry. He's been legit like casting out demons at certain points. There's been civil unrest because of the truth of the kingdom of God impacting the king of the, world, the kingdoms of the world leads to conflict. And, and Paul's just been getting the trash kicked out of him. And as he's been planting churches, he's, he's had a conflict with this Corinthian church. They've been walking in sin in different regards. He's had to actually like write them a letter saying, hey, um, where you're at is out of step with God's word. And, and, and so he, he's doing that. And, and so now he's, he's alone. He's isolated. And we see that as he comes to Macedonia, he's on this journey where um, even though he's changed venues, he's come to a new city, he's still afflicted. And Often in our lives, we look to the next season of life. We look to the next circumstances. We're going we're gonna to change venues. We're gonna ch- we'll just change relationships. We'll change churches. We'll just change, and that will make the affliction go away. And in this case, Paul's changed venues over and over and over, and yet he's on this journey that just ends up leading to more affliction. And so what I love about the Bible, what I love about God's Word, and I, I say this often, but I want it to be, be real for us, is that the Bible is so realistic about the human condition and about the world that we live in. Because it's the Word of God. God who created the world, who created us, and who understands us better than we understand ourselves. And so here's Paul, he's, he's moved on to a new place, new circumstances, new venues, same afflictions. And if Paul was in a 90s comedy, he'd be starring in Sleepless in Macedonia. There we go, that's a really old joke. Nobody's seen that movie anymore. Because it's not Sleepless in Seattle, well, it's just unrest in Seattle. Okay, it's a different thing, all right. What he says, when it says, our bodies had no rest, the literal translation is, our flesh had no sleep. He is restless. His anxiety, his afflictions, the circumstances, the conflicts around him have just left him exhausted. And this is not insignificant. Here's here's the Apostle Paul running to a church about affliction, about spiritual things. He says, I can't sleep. See, we segment ourselves into these different categories. I got my mind, my body, my soul, and we forget that we're holistic people. We believe that we're just I'm just an individual, we're not part of a community. So we neglect relationships. Here's Paul, God's word writing to this church, and he's saying, hey, my body's out of sync, and it's making my soul weary, right? Any of you with newborn babies, your soul's weary, right? Because they're crying all the time. They want to be fed all the time. Or like, you, you, you start to have chronic pain, and it's just like not letting you sleep. You don't like wake up chipper and like, I just want to love my neighbor well. I want to be patient with those around me. No. Right? It affects our souls. In the same regards that when our soul aches and we're dealing with sin or we're dealing with relational conflict, what does it do? It keeps you up at night because we're holistic people. 
And so when your body's out of sync, it impacts all of your life. Physical ailments and restlessness, they begin to compound our ability to navigate normal life. And then, and then he throws this phrase out there. After no rest, oh, BT-dub, um, we're afflicted at every turn. So, like, you're like, okay, work's not going well, but at least I can go home and, like, everything with the family's good. Oh, shoot, not good there. Okay, well, hey, at least, like, the bank account. Oh, okay, wait, never mind. Okay, well, hey, let me look in the mirror. Whoa, okay, it's just, no, right? It, it's, it's when we want to think and hope that we can just engage with one difficult thing at a time. And instead, it's different spheres of life that are all popping off at once. Maybe I'll just go on social media and, like, find some good memes, and then it's like, oh, never mind. You know, more division, more frustration. And so what he's saying, uh, another translation for afflicted every turn is harassed in every turn. It's a relentlessness. He can't seem to catch a break. It doesn't matter the path, the day, the sphere of life. They're all met with difficulty, annoyance, frustration. It's leading him to, and contributing to greater fatigue for him. And he throws these phrases out. Fighting without and fear within. It's like, well, what are some of the afflictions? Well, one is external conflict. For most of us, if, if you're around my age, we, we grew up in a world that was relatively free from conflict. And I say that, I'm referring to if you grew up here in the U.S. in the last couple decades. So, um, you know, the, the big, great wars, right? We're like, oh, they're over there on the other side of the world. Like, oh, oh man, massive tsunami wipes out a, a whole bunch of people. Well, that's over there. That's not here. You get to maybe like, I want to see it's like 2012, I don't know if you're on the date, but like the Arab Spring, and you see streets in major cities filled with people rioting, protesting, civil unrest. And you're like, well, that's over there. Ooh, man, there's a disease spreading around, and it's, it's causing all these issues over there. Ah, and here we are in 2020. One, gosh, I'm losing count, okay? And all of a sudden, the external conflicts that were just kind of like, ah, they don't really affect me because they're just out there, they, 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 they hit home. And maybe it's not just, again, we talk about this, the big stories in the world, but it's the individual little stories. Like another pastor resigning, another church shutting down, another broken relationship, another um, issue in somebody's marriage. Like, right, it all, it comes to sort of another health issue and concern that maybe is not COVID-related. Guess what? A lot of other diseases in the world that are happening. And so we come to this place, uh, and some commentators are even like saying, hey, you know, Paul was even facing challenges within the church. He was facing challenges from other people who were opponents to his ministry. And so, yeah, it might be environmental, but it's also specific to what's going on in our lives. And there's added pressure of division and separation, and, and, it's, and it's kind of thrown us into conflict at times. And Paul just says, hey, man, the conflict is exhausting. And that's out there. And then he also says there's internal concern. So external conflict, internal concern. See, what is outside is, that can be overwhelming. But what's in here, this is what becomes all-consuming. That voice in your head that doesn't stop. That conversation you wish you could be having with somebody right now. That debate you wish you could be having right now, but you can't. And it starts to consume you in our internal lives. Right? We, like, yeah, our outward actions matter. But our internal lives, the conditions of our souls, the thoughts we meditate on, what we consume, 
they, they have an impact on us. How we process emotions, how we find rest and renewal for our minds and for our souls matters. And, and Paul here, he's alone and he's isolated. And when we get uh, alone and isolated, it leads to great despair. And he says, hey, my, my body's not at rest. My soul's not at rest. And, and when we have external events or, or internal struggles starting to rage in and around us, it just takes rest from you. And so I want you to ask yourself when that happens. Don't say when because it happens for all of us. Where do you go? Where do you turn to? What is your source for, for peace, for renewal, for, for um, recentering, for, for, for trying to understand and, and reorienting your life in a way that's going to lead to flourishing? Well, we're given the answer here in verse 6. Verse 6, right? You got Verse 5 is just awful. Like, I don't want anything to do with verse 5. You get to verse 6, you can circle this in your Bibles. But God... But God, anytime you see a list of terrible things in the Bible, and then, and then the next phrase is, but God, oh, that is, that is good news. That is good news because it means that as great and as real as your struggles are, internal, external, sin, broken relationships, whatever it is, whatever you're fearing, whatever you're concerned with, whatever's real, what is great pain, there's a real and greater God who can meet you in that pain, meet you in that sin, meet you in that brokenness, and actually bring you life. It is a great reversal. Um, uh, in fall, we looked at the book of Esther, and we saw, man, things are going bad. All society's heading towards, like, Haman was this, this um, uh, he was this, like, early, you know, 2,000 years pre-Hitler, Hitler, trying to get rid of the people of God. And, and then, boom, great reversal. That's what you're seeing right here in verses 5 and 6. Affliction at every turn. Everywhere you look, it's terrible. But God. But God, who shows up. And not only does he show up, what does God do here? Show up and rebuke, show up and, 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 and God says he shows up. But God, who what? Comforts the downcast. So, the second Corinthians is great. I'm loving reading through this letter in depth. Chapter 1, it just talks about the God who's he's God the Father of all comfort. He's the one that comfort comes from. And so, the God of all comfort brings comfort not to the comfortable, but he brings comfort to the conflicted. He doesn't bring comfort to the confident but the concerned. Not to the strong or those who think they are, but to the weak and to the humble. And then don't miss this part of the chain. Don't over-spiritualize the comfort of God because we are whole people. And God comforts us in comprehensive ways, mind, body, and soul, and relationally. And so there are aspects of life that are just good. Right? Cold, rainy day, nice cup of coffee, nice book by the fire. If that comforts you, all good things are from the Lord. And so in this case, he doesn't just say, and the God of all comfort showed up, like I prayed a prayer, I saw a vision, it's all better now. Like Paul did some of that, that's amazing. How does God comfort Paul in verse 6? It's very, very specific. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us, how? By the coming of Titus. I want you to see this chain. Downcast, affliction, brokenness, sin even, conflict. Met by God who brings comfort and then tangible ways that comfort comes. Specifically, 
God used another brother in Christ to comfort Paul. He used relationship to comfort Paul. An angel didn't show up, just good old Titus. And he showed up with good news. See, there are things in life, like I said, that are good. God gives spiritual comfort. Yes, he does. Like, like your soul's weary. Like, yes, pray. Yes, read God's word. Yes, like press into the character and the nature of God. And call a friend. Talk to somebody who loves Jesus and loves you. Don't be alone. Don't be isolated. Part of how God can and does comfort comes specifically from earthly sources and even specific people. Paul's downcast, God comforts, and he does so by bringing Titus. Relationships and how we handle them and how we navigate them matter to God. Because God's a relational God. He also brings this comfort in community, yes, but also comfort in good news. See, God brings us comfort in the arrival of good news. And and what's the the good news? The good news is the Corinthian church has experienced what we're going to talk about today about repentance. He's like, hey, not only did Titus show up, not only um, was, uh, did I get to hear what's going on in the Corinthian church, oh my goodness, they repented? Like, they turned from following sin to, to, to going back to following the God of the Bible? And the response to repentance is rejoicing. He's excited. He's encouraged. He gets this report of what has happened. And so with all of his current affliction and all of his current suffering, Paul's like, man, things are tough right now. And and even when we're navigating painful and difficult points, don't shadows of the past haunt us every now and then. Oh man, that relationship that's still not fixed. Oh man, that thing I did over here. Oh man, that that the thing that was done to me here. Don't those don't those shadows, don't those ghosts just kind of haunt us at times? And so for Paul, even though none of his current present circumstances have changed at all. He receives comfort because one of his stories that he thought was just kind of undone and unresolved is beginning to resolve. And it took a lot of time and it took a lot of patience and it wasn't right away. But he receives comfort from, is it dumb old analogy, right? But if you have like a, a non-Mac, I don't know why you would, um, but if you have a non-Mac, right, it starts to run slow and all the windows are open. And it's like, oh, just close that one. Now things are running a little bit smoother. Oh, good, I can finally close the chapter on that. Or, or even better, oh, I, I didn't think there was another chapter of that story. Oh, my goodness, there's another chapter, and it's better. That chapter sucked. Oh, there's a better chapter? It involved God working? We're going to see how God works here in just a moment. But uh, I want us to be clear because uh, he talks a little bit um, about loss here in chapter 7, right? You know, there's there's some grief. Like like the Corinthian church, like they were mourning Paul. Paul's like, oh man, I I felt bad that there was a separation here. Paul finds out, oh no, they felt bad about it too. Like in their relationships, if there's ever going to be reconciliation, there has to be mutuality. Both parties have to kind of be in that same spot. Of saying, yeah, yeah, we, we want this to continue. We want to reconcile it in a good way. And so there's mutuality and friendships and relationships. It's healthy. Uh, and so he's longing for this relationship to be restored, and they see it too. But we need to look at, it wasn't just like, well, time passed. We're all good now. Huh, man, remember all that? Remember all those things you said? Remember all those things I said? It doesn't work that way. You know, something actually happened. This gets back to our first question. 
How do we change? Why do we change? And that comes back to repentance. And we're going to talk about that. Verses 8 through 12 are a really important section of Scripture for us to be able to use as a diagnostic for our souls and also how we're responding to our own sin or how we even engage or understand the sin of others. So let's take a look at it here. Verses 8 through 12, I'll read it and we'll talk about it. It says this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. We'll talk about that. Verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, or another translation, to be clear, says uh, a grief intended by God. Look at that. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10. For godly grief, or grief intended by God, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For I see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, or another translation is, is, is justice. At every point you've proven yourself innocent in the matter. Verse 12. So that I wrote to you is not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who's suffering the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So in other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, you see the concept of speaking the truth in love. Right? And, and, and we have jacked that up uh, uh, different ways. Like, hey, I'm just speaking the truth in love to you, brother. You're a jerk. You're like, woo, let's, 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 let's kind of temper that a little bit, right? Or we just don't speak truth and we only speak love. Forgetting somehow that Jesus is full of truth and love. That we are called to grace and truth. Conviction and compassion. And so as we address issues with people, I want to be clear, it's God's word, it's the Holy Spirit which brings heart change. And it can happen by yourself. What I mean by that is, yeah, hey, maybe you were just on your own and you're reading God's word, and I hope you do that, um, and, and you come across the verse and you are convicted of sin and you repent. However, often, as we see in this particular situation, it happens in the context of community. It happens in relationship. It happens not because the Holy Spirit spoke an audible word, but God through the Holy Spirit caused somebody to speak into the life of another. This gets into how our relationships form us and shape us and help us change. That God does use people, right? He used Titus for comfort. And we're going to see here, he used Paul for the Corinthians, not for comfort at the moment, but for conviction. We'll talk in a moment about conviction versus condemnation because that's an important distinction. And so Paul's written uh, a severe letter, which he was both clear and uh, convicting. And so when it happens that we're like, hey, you know, th there needs to be some necessary correction here. Like, like you fired off really intense and like, um, we got we to talk about that. But there needs to be some correction here. Like that requires a lot of delicacy. That requires a lot of discernment and delicate engagement. And, and, and we got to recognize if, if and when we engage with this, like if, if you are in a sense the confronter, 
then, then we've got to be really careful and, and be prepared that it's not going to usually go well right away. And, and I say this because, like, like we know this, like Paul loved this church. He loved them with compassion and conviction. He writes this letter, uh, and, and, and he sends off the letter. Like, like, um, like they've sinned. It's clear. He sent it out, and then doesn't hear anything for a while. And then even worse, right? It's like, you know, like you're doing this over text. Pro tip, never do this over text or social media, okay? But you do it over text, and like you're texting back and forth, and then there's just three dots, and then the three dots disappear. You're like, what did I just say? What just happened? And see, that's, that's Paul. He wrote this letter, and he's like, hey, I wrote you a severe letter, and, and I was worried that it, that it hurt you, but, but hurt you in a, in a condemning way, not a convicting of sin way, because didn't hear from you for a while. Right? And so Paul expresses healthy self-doubt on his role of bringing sin to bear or God's word to bear or conviction to bear on the life of another. And I want to be really, really clear. I think that's incredibly healthy. And if you don't have a little bit of like, man, I wonder if I'm going to hurt somebody by doing this. Or I wonder if like this is too easy. If you don't have some of that, you are maybe not the best person to be exhorting others or to be trying to, you know, you know, hold the, you know, the plank and the speck for other people. Because if you're just like, yeah, I just spoke the truth, boom. I don't care if I hurt you. I just deliver the mail. Like, no, you're a sociopath, right? Like, like if other people are hurt, like, like you should have some grief. And in this case, he's got just a little bit of self-doubt. And so if you're totally cool with always telling it like it is, like, this might not be the role that God has for you in the Holy Spirit at this time. So Paul has this healthy, should I have said that? Did I push too hard? I haven't heard from them. It gets back to grace and truth. And then he says, but no, I was, I was moved. Because while it's clear that you suffered some grief for a while, it led you to repentance. See, sin hurts and sin has consequences. And when we're the ones who've sinned or we're the ones just even walking in sin, continue to live lives that are just like defined by or characterized by sin, we should not experience peace in that walk or in that journey. We should, and it's okay to be a little restless. David in Psalm 32 or 34, I believe, says that when he was in sin, it rotted his bones. Like it was just, 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 Ah, it gave him this angst where he just was never comfortable. And so, experiencing grief at times is not always wrong. But we need to be clear, not all grief is created equal. Not all grief, not all pain, not all frustration is created equal. They look the same at the, on the outside, and they look the same at first, right? Oh, I did something. Okay, there's shame, there's defensiveness, there's disorientation, there's a yearning for things to, oh, Pandora's box, let's get, let's get that back in the way, the way it used to be. But what drives our grief and what drives these feelings and experiences have dramatically different outcomes. And the first one is this. Paul talks about worldly grief. This is, this is when we are hyper-focused on an individual understanding of the mess we're in. And the individual understanding of, of the world, I mean, this is all about us. This is all about me. This is you saying it's all about you. It says it produces death. That's the spoiler. How do we get there? Well, it doesn't take any ownership. 
it defends, and it never surrenders. So yeah, you got grief, and you're upset, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't like this situation. And so there's a little bit of grief, a little bit of remorse, and it might lead to a little bit of change, but it's going to lead to greater grief later. And so this is like, you're, you're in sin, and, and, and you weren't moved by the Holy Spirit, or reading God's Word, or hearing from another brother or sister in Christ that convicted you. Oh no, you didn't confess. You were found out. And you're like, dang it. It's all out there. Exposed. And again, you feel shame, you feel defensiveness. And it then starts to lead to self-pity internally. It starts to lead to bitterness externally. Oh, I can't believe they did this. Oh, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they did this to me. Like, right? It never takes ownership. And so merely being upset when we've been caught, or merely like being frustrated that we're suffering consequences, is unproductive to actually bringing you new life. This worldly grief is, I don't like the circumstances I'm in now. And I will do and say whatever I can just for the circumstances to change or to go away. And so you don't like the circumstances you're in, uh, the sin you've caused, uh, and, and you don't really care that you hurt others. You just don't like how they're treating you now because of your sin. And so... You don't grieve how your sin has impacted others. And this gets back to that focus and that driver of worldly grief is you. It's me. It's ourselves. And we, so we do this when things are just going on fire around us, you know, relationally. And we're like, oh, my God. Everybody was just fine until I said X, and then now it's, no. What happens, right, we, we've all done this. And if we haven't done it explicitly, we've thought it. Oh man, I'm really sorry. Not for what I did, but for how what I did made you feel. That's worldly grief. You're not sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm just, man, sorry, you're upset. Moving on. Incomplete grief. This happens in a religious context. Right? This worldly grief. I screwed up. God is mad at me. I better change so that God's happy with me. So I don't want to be under wrath, right? And so, and you might not be religious, so rather than saying, I don't want God to be upset with me, just insert spouse, boss, teacher, parent, kid, relationship, um, society at large. I don't want to get canceled. No, worldly grief. You just don't want to do anything to upset. And so, we work ourselves to the point of exhaustion because the driver for change is just to work past the shame, past the regret, change the circumstances. That's religious worldly grief. Happens irreligiously as well. Um, I don't need to experience grief. I don't like these feelings of shame. I don't like, I don't like, the, I don't like the, your tone. I don't like the idea that I have to change in any way at all. I am perfect. This happens actually religiously, just the way God made me. I'm perfect just the way God made me. You're the problem. Or, I don't believe in God. I'm just perfect. I'm God. We wouldn't say that part because we kind of know we shouldn't say that. But what happens is the problem is never in here because this is the center of my everything. Everything in here must be true. I'm the arbiter of what's true. I'm the arbiter of what's right and good. It's not God's word. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not anybody else. And so 
I don't need to change. In fact, you need to change so that you can accept me as I am. I don't have to change at all. And what happens is it negates the fact that sin is real. But even if we experience personal negative consequences, like, oh man, that person's uncomfortable with me now, or you've, you've done this over here, and now that relationship's broken. When the fruit of our choices or our desires or disposition leads us to distress, we become more upset with the outcome of our sin than we do for taking ownership over it. Neither of these produce lasting flourishing life. And it can lead us to misunderstanding the concepts of condemnation and conviction. See, the enemy, there is an enemy. There are real spiritual forces that are evil and dark, that are opposed to the Word of God, that are opposed to the Holy Spirit. And and the enemy comes and he condemns. Or he lies to us and tells us that, that we are sinless. So he either condemns us for our sin or tells us we don't have any. And in doing so, his goal is to separate us from the God who made us. His goal is to to shame us from ourselves and to break the relationships around us. Whereas the Holy Spirit comes, and when there's grief over sin, He doesn't come with condemnation. The Bible's clear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who where your identity is not in yourself, but is in Christ and is Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and and the Holy Spirit's desire is for us to, to seek repentance, to seek restoration. Not so that we'll reestablish a secure relationship with God, but because we already have one. Live out the life you already have in Christ. But we don't like either of these. We don't like conviction and we don't like condemnation. Why? Because both of these at the beginning show us a little lower than our initial view of ourselves. They both require humility. One leads to humiliation. The other, humility leads to honor. The difference is whether it's worldly grief or godly grief. And so let's talk about godly grief, because you need one conviction to avoid the other condemnation. Paul talks about godly grief. As I said, one of the translations is God-intended grief. Oh my gosh. Wait, God intends us to experience grief? Yes, for a purpose. And that purpose is repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. So you don't, if you're in sin or sin, and we all have, like, you don't need to be put out in Shame Island. All right, I'm stuck out in Shame Island, and I'm just away from it. I'm just going to, more of it, no. And you don't need to walk around pridefully like, oh, I've never sinned. Or that have no consequences for sin. So yes, we have self-doubt. Yes, we have shame. Sometimes it's necessary when we're the ones in sin because God said that we're called to be conformed and transformed to the image of Christ. We actually see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We read this a few weeks ago. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, it says, are being transformed into the same image, looking more and more like Christ, it says. From one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This comes from the Holy Spirit. And so when we fail and when we sin, our identity, your identity, is not failure or sinner. Your identity is not exile or rebel or orphan. Your identity in Christ is family, child of God, saint, citizen of a greater kingdom. And if we forget that, 
then our grief will just lead us to greater despair rather than to greater life and repentance. So repentance is a word we, we use a lot. It's, it means a complete heart and mind change that in, includes your attitude about God. It also includes your attitude about your own sin. You know, and like, I just kind of messed up. Like, yeah, we, we do mess up. We do make mistakes. But it's like, you know, I, I sin. I have sin. And we, we mourn that. And so I want to be clear. You go from not caring about your sin to being convicted by it. It's not repentance that saves you. Jesus Christ saves you. God and the Holy Spirit makes you new. But repentance absolutely is an outcome of your salvation. So you can't say, well, I'll just keep repenting and I'll be saved. No, repentance is a response to the regenerated new life we have in Christ and with Christ. Um, we, we love the great reformers. We love church history here at Mercy Fellowship. We love God's word. And, and what great reformer Martin Luther, right, when he put his 95 thesis up on the Wittenberg door to, to, to say, hey, we need to get back to what's true and right about the word of God. Thesis number one was this. It's up on the screen. No, it's not. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended the entire life of a believer should be one of repentance. That can sound exhausting on the one hand if we misunderstand godly grief and we misunderstand repentance. Wait, you mean like I always got to turn, like I'm going to keep finding more affliction on every turn? I find sin under every rock? Oh my gosh, I keep peeling the layers of my heart. There's more and more darkness here. No, what he means is, is that the Christian life, life with Jesus, is one where we're constantly invited and called to repent of sin. And in that calling to repent of sin is always an invitation to greater life. It's always to turn from things that will lead to destruction, to shame, to separation, and to turn with that which brings life, flourishing, joy, in Christ. And so, um, if you read on in the Bible about repentance, you see that God grants repentance. It's a gift from the Lord through the Holy Spirit. It's how we're transformed by God. It's how we're transformed for God. And so, we turn from that which, which produces division and death, that which produces life. And in turning, our orientation, like this is the difference between godly grief and worldly grief, our orientation goes from being inward, oh, what was me? It turns away from outward, like, oh, they did this, or oh, my circumstances this. And it changes our orientation to upward. Who is God? What has he already done for me in Christ? How, through the Holy Spirit, is he changing me and transforming me today? How does he want me to grow and change Tomorrow. Not so that we're exhausted, wondering, am I in relationship with God? Am I reconciled to God? Uh Uh-oh, I I had these nine sins. I think I repented of eight, maybe six and a half. It depends on if it's a Friday or not. Uh, And then like, like, where did I stand? You're in that secure relationship. So Martin Luther's saying, we keep repenting because at any moment, like we're such fickle creatures that we're, we're walking this way, we're walking towards Christ, we're experiencing life and joy, but we're not yet perfect. And so sin clings to us. We turn back and we're going this way. And Jesus said, no, 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 come, on, come back here. Like, you ever walked in a grocery store with a three-year-old? Like, no, 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 not that, no, this way, this way. 
That's what God does to us as a loving Father through the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes that repentance even looks like just stopping going this direction. Right? Like for progress to be achieved in our life, growth to be achieved in our life, you just stop going the wrong way? But that's not, we don't want just that. That's where repentance is turning to what's true, what's right, and what's good. And so we're walking away from that. We're walking this direction. And Paul says, oh man, you have such eagerness, such earnestness. You have integrity and intensity and zeal for restitution, for reconciliation. He says that repentance leads to salvation with no regret. That's because when we repent, we're repenting with God. We're repenting with a God who is patient and kind. You take a note, Romans 2.4 says this, Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is patient, God is kind, and God wants us to repent of sin. wants us to turn from the person that's all about ourselves and to become and follow and be the person that he's created us to be in Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ. And so we can, we can see this a couple times in the Bible. I'll make these stories relatively quick, but um, you see kind of the, the contrast. And one of this is in King David and the others in Judas. So you look at King David, and if you know his story, we might hit Psalm 51 at some point um, this summer as we look at Psalms and parables. But, but King David, right, um, he is all sold out to, to kill this unimpeachable general, like this really good general that he had fighting wars out there. And the reason he's sold out to, to overseeing his murder is because he needs to cover up the fact that David, while he wasn't fighting, wasn't doing what he was supposed to, impregnated that, that general's wife. It's really suspect. It's not good at all. They sold out to it. It happens. It leads to destruction. It leads to death. I mean, like this, this wreck havoc nationally. This was a national uh, 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 scandal, right? It was Hamilton before Hamilton, okay? If you know, you know. If you don't know, okay. So here's David. And um, to be clear, actually, David doesn't confess. David's not like, oh, man, I feel so bad about this. No, in community, Nathan, the prophet, shows up, tells a story, confronts David with grace and truth. And says, David, you're in sin. That the path you've chosen, the actions you've taken have not left it, led to greater life. It actually led to greater destruction. And the response that David has, we see in Psalm 51. He's a broken heart, a contrite heart. He says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Whoa, wait, huh? What about the gal here? What about the guy here? What about the whole nation? He directs his grief, and understands his sin from the Lord. Yes, it impacted his horizontal relationships, for sure. He says, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. In humility, he seeks God for mercy and grace, and he finds, what does Psalm 51 say? A renewed and right spirit in his soul. His soul's restored. His soul is renewed. Okay, Judas contrast sells out Jesus to oversee his murder for 30 pieces of silver. Judas right away, like within a few hours, he feels bad about it. Judas actually, 
Like, from an external standpoint, like, well, he tried to make it better. He tried to give the money back. Well, no, you don't read about Judas saying, hey, take the guy off the cross. He's innocent. I was wrong. No, no, no. It's all about Judas. You just give me the money back. I don't want to bear this shame. I don't want to bear this condemnation. He just tries to change his circumstances so that he will feel better about himself. And instead, as he tries to undo his actions, ease his circumstances, it ends up overwhelming his conscience, and in despair, he ends his own life in disgrace. The difference is in the heart, and the difference is where we go to for peace. Judas's heart was all about himself. He tried to change his circumstances, so he went to the Pharisees. David goes to the Lord and receives a change of heart. Worldly grief, death, godly grief, repentance, renewal of spirit and soul, even restoration of relationships. And that's why this is so important. Is relationships matter? A lot of these consequences, sin never stays contained. And, and as, as myself, as a, as a pastor and other leaders I've engaged with, is, is when we have to get to or have to be the people that enter into the most difficult situations, usually like it's in a marriage situation where there's sin or infidelity or, or brokenness, right? And, and you come in, and, and this is the text we go to, to see like, what, what path do you want? Are you just upset that your marriage is in a rough spot right now? Or do you have a godly grief that's going to lead to repentance? It's going to lead to restoration. It says says they're comforted. It leads to joy. It leads to life. It leads to flourishing. And unfortunately, what happens is a lot of times, like like when police show up to like a domestic violence call, like then then they they go after the police. Right? And so you start to get, like you, you start to engage and confront even lovingly as, 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 as clear and as gentle as you can around sin, oh, man, you just get bit back hard. And so I have seen with my own eyes marriages restored where godly grief has led to repentance. And the journey is terrible and beautiful. The destination is better. And sadly, I've seen, particularly in marriages, but there's just the, I don't like that I'm having to deal with this right now. And it doesn't lead to greater flourishing. It just leads to more disaster. You and I and we cannot make anyone repent ever. Only God and the Holy Spirit can do that. So we release ourselves of being responsible for outcomes. And where we're called, we engage and we speak the truth in love for the purposes of joy and restoration and repentance for all. And that leads us to our last verses as we close. So I'm going long, guys, but hey, it's church weather, right? You can't go anywhere else today. Okay. Verses 13 through 16, then we'll close. It says this. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit's been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembered the obedience of you all. How you received him in the fear and trembling. Verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. 
The outcome of repentance that comes from godly grief is, is the community rejoicing and even a restored confidence in the community around. Because all of a sudden you say, oh my gosh, where there's repentance, relationships have resiliency. Where there's not repentance, where there's worldly grief or even no grief at all, reconciliation can't happen. Yes, we forgive. Yes, we free ourselves from bitterness. But we don't reconcile, we don't walk together. But oh, it's so beautiful when there is repentance, where there is a unity that comes to the Holy Spirit that brings people back together. Because it says, oh my gosh, our relationship can make it through this. We might be able to make it through anything. The next conflict becomes easier. The next challenge, I don't want to say easier. We can endure and we can persevere through it because it has repentance has led to some resiliency. So the outcome of repentance and facing consequences, pursuing reconciliation, is it's worth it. I mean, right here in verse 13, Titus, Paul, and everyone is encouraged. And so as we close, I want you to ask yourself, how have you seen or experienced restoration when there's been repentance? Have you seen somebody change? It's changed the nature and the trajectory of your relationship. Or how have you been that person? I want you to ask yourself, this is going to be tough. Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to turn from sin and follow the God who made you, knows you, and loves you and be renewed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Maybe today you came in and you don't even know anything about Jesus. And you just thought you were doing just fine. All of the Christian life is one of repentance, and it begins with turning from our sin and following Jesus. If you're here today, if that's where your heart is at, we believe that's the Holy Spirit changing you, turning you now. He's already beginning to make you a new creation. We would pray that you would confess your need for God as your Savior, as your King in Jesus Christ, and you'd receive Him as your Savior, follow Him as your we believe that means that you are born again, that you're regenerate, that you're made new. It doesn't mean that your next days, weeks, months, and years are going to be perfect, but it means that you have a perfect God who's walking with you. And the destination is going to be eternal glory. If you know Christ and you know Jesus, then we know that all of our life is one of repentance. So there's, there's always sin. There's always something to repent of. I mean, Tara confronts me with stuff all the time, and I hate it when she does at first. Then I realize it's, it's truth spoken in love for the purposes of greater flourishing life for myself and for my family and for my kids. Where or who rather do you need to forgive somewhere else? With wise boundaries. Right? Somebody's abused you, somebody like you don't need to reenter into that. Where do you need to forgive to release yourself from the burden of waiting for them to Where should you confront with truth and love? And lastly, and I think this is the one that I want to just permeate our culture more and more and more. At the beginning of this was Paul in despair, being encouraged by the God of all comfort who brought him Titus. The end is seeing that God's people have repented and, and reformed a relationship and are walking with Lord, the Lord. And the, the result of all of this encouragement. And so where can you bring comfort 
and encouragement with your presence, with your provision, and with your prayer. Remembering that God comforts the downcast by giving his people the courage to repent, to enjoy refreshed souls, renewed relationships, as we continue to simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.